0: instead of being defensive or unable to hear it, getting to a point where we're having really honest, open, vulnerable conversations in living in empathy, to say, you bring your defensiveness, bring your questions. That is how we work through it and get to action and get to that unfrozen, thawed out place where it's like, okay, I can hear, I can see clearly, and now I'm gonna act. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis.
1: Hi there, welcome back to season two of Wisdom for Wellbeing. Have you connected with us on social media? Because a launch party is happening and there are some amazing prizes to be won. I'll tell you more, but first, I want to share about today's premiere episode, where I am joined by licensed clinical social worker Erin Matthews to discuss race. Erin is a contagiously optimistic therapist and seasoned coach with over 15 years of mental health experience. Throughout her career, she has focused on therapy, coaching, and training, with an emphasis in the public and private sector. Erin has extensive facilitation and training experience, leading others to realize their own potential. I am really excited to be starting off Season 2 with this interview. You have no doubt been hearing about the Black Lives Matter movement and the depth of racial trauma Black people continue to experience in countries around the world. I'm sure lots of us have been exploring and reflecting on our own unconscious bias and how we can become anti-racist and effective allies. With this, I want to acknowledge that I may inadvertently speak insensitively or poorly on this topic, But I don't feel that remaining silent is the most appropriate option so as I continue to reflect and learn I am certainly open to receiving your perspectives and feedback privately or publicly so that I can refine my sensitivity and be a more effective ally in this area. One framework that I am finding to be particularly useful to me was offered by Ibram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti Racist, where Professor Kendi disbands the static and often self proclaimed concept of being not racist and instead defines racism and anti racism in terms of each action and idea we champion in any given moment. Particularly powerful is his examination of his own acknowledged racism and clarification that we cannot be anti-racist without action, you know, essentially without activism. Professor Kendi powerfully highlights that policies that create and sustain racial disparity must be dismantled before change can actually take place. So then it is our task as anti-racists to be vulnerable enough to acknowledge, discuss, and challenge our own racist beliefs, and then to ensure that we're supporting organizations cultivating change, working towards healing the racial disparities in our own communities. And this is how I found Erin's work, Aaron's mission is to become an indispensable partner with individuals and organizations by coaching, training, and mentoring white people to become warriors for racial justice by dismantling white supremacy on a personal and professional level to become real game-changers. Having received training in multicultural therapy and being a woman of color, Erin has spent years honing what does and does not work for clients. Erin works extensively with racism, inclusion, and acceptance of both one's own racial and ethnic identity, and being able to move through the world with confidence, realizing how oppression and identity impact clients has been a crucial part of her work in helping clients move forward and feel high levels of self-worth. Being able to identify clients' struggles within their family, community, and social systems has allowed her to deepen the work that she does for clients. Erin feels strongly about education around how racism impacts both community and individuals in and outside of the therapy room. Working with white people who are unfamiliar with interacting with oppressed or marginalized populations has become an integral part of her want to both educate and promote improving racial relations. One way that Erin does this is through her co-facilitation of her group, Living in Empathy. She shares the facilitation with an amazing Indigenous woman, Nima Novak. While I've been fortunate to engage in different, you know, opportunities of courses and reading, supporting my reflection in this area, I had not actually heard of a small group aimed at cultivating a space for white people to unpack their unconscious bias, you know, to practice courageous conversation and engage in social justice action planning. In fact, today you will even hear about what Erin describes as micro and macro social justice actions. I've signed up for the therapist version of this group, and I am super excited to engage in this process of reflection on my own biases and the social justice actions that I can take, because we all have blind spots, which is essentially the purpose of therapy and coaching, and I'm such a big believer in these processes. But before we head into the interview, I want to quickly share a bit about the season two launch party. We are doing a giveaway supporting all things wellness on Instagram and Facebook. So you could win a self-care and self-development package that features some wonderful goodies by some amazing Indigenous Australian artists, coupled with an audiobook version of How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. This said, if you have already read or listened to How to Be an Anti-Racist, the winner can choose an alternative book, such as Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy, which is currently in my hands and is providing me a very useful tool to reflect on my own privilege and effective action to support dismantling racist policy to support the well-being of all. So, please just head to at Wisdom for well-being Pod on Facebook, or at Dr. Caitlin on Instagram. Or of course, just head to the show notes where this is all linked drcaitlin.com. And again, thank you so much for being part of the launch of season one and for your feedback. This giveaway is indeed going to be international. So wherever you're based, come and join us. But without further ado, now please let me introduce you to Erica so that she can share with you about how you can practice self-care given the ongoing racial trauma experienced if you are Black, and about her work holding space for white people to examine the impact of white fragility and to cultivate anti-racism. So thank you so much, Erin, for being on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. It is a delight for you to be here today. I'm so, I'm so happy and blessed.
0: Thank you so much. Excited to be here talking about such a relevant topic in this time in the world.
1: Yeah, it is, it is a really relevant topic. And we're going to be talking listeners through, you know, racial trauma, what that means and how we can actually move towards, you know, healing for particularly you work with a lot of black women who are suffering as a result of these experiences that, you know, that I, and I say in air quotes, microaggressions that they're experiencing every day. And you also work with white women who want to be allies and want to take appropriate steps to move into to that space of allyship and anti-racism.
0: You bet. That's what I'm so excited to talk about living in empathy, as you just said, working with white women. Um, I can give you a little um, background. So I am a trained therapist and I grew up in Illinois in the U.S. and I grew up with mostly white people. So I have that life experience. And then as a social worker, it's a very white woman dominated field in the US. And I've had so many conversations in a small group or one on one with white people about race. But I know this for sure, that when the group gets bigger, the conversation ends. And it might be if you're in the workplace or somewhere where you're having that traditional diversity training, people of color might talk, but the white people can check out. So with every all the trauma going on here in the US, um, Black Americans were in such a distraught place, um, which we have been for years, but this is just really bringing forth so much for us. Um, but I, I've noticed that White people, too, are pretty frozen. So I thought, you know what? Maybe I should just put it out there. I would like to do a four week group and just see if I get some white people that might come. And I put it out there and I was like, I might get five and I got 60. So it was, it's such, it gives me such hope that people want to do the work, white people in a safe space. I mean, we only have 10 to 12 people max in a group talking about whiteness, what that means in everyday terms. And throughout the four weeks of like giving space for my partner, um, who's, her name's Nima, she presents on the invisibility of indigenous cultures. And how that plays out in our lives. And I present a lot on anti-blackness and how that plays out and what having white privilege and working through whiteness, like when do white people have that space, a private space for four weeks, one hour a week to really be vulnerable and talk about what being white is, what it does, and how to make change when you're feeling hopeless and helpless. It's a place to make change.
1: And that's a really interesting point, you know, in regards to the change because you highlighted the frozenness. And I hear a lot about people, you know, using the word guilt and guilt, you know, like all emotions are designed to convey messages to us, like messages that we need to take some sort of an action. And with that emotion of guilt, rather than perhaps moving to that state of frozenness in the sense that there's nothing we can do, you know, moving into a state of connection in a group that, you know, Mm. like living in empathy offers so that we can figure out how we can be allies and move through that emotion to living and being the person we want to be showing up as the ally that our hearts,
0: our hearts, you know, would love us
1: to move towards and be.
0: Right. Right. And I, this group, that's why I called it living in empathy. I know so many white people want to do the right thing. So it's really that taking that step to say, "Okay, I need some support with that to get unfrozen and to really live in it because as we know, anti-racism work is a lifelong process." Yeah. Um, yeah. So this so over the 4 weeks I can already tell you of like really tackling subjects that most people aren't comfortable talking about their vulnerabilities with race but this space provides that and we've already seen great testimonials of like I'm I've been called to action and people are doing it yeah Yeah. it's really amazing I think, would it be okay
1: if, you know, this call to action, you know, this idea that it evokes movement, which sounds, you know, entirely Mm. different from frozenness, but just to backtrack a little, would you mind defining for the listeners, you know, what race is and what racism is?
0: Right. So here in the U.S., um, we are very divided by race, which is in many times linked to your skin color. Um, So whether you're white or black or latinx um or southeast asian or asian how you represent racially um, and then what power is associated to that so then that gets into the racism piece of like what race is holding power so we're using the term white supremacy a lot and that does not mean people burning down uh people's homes or you know doing really violent things It can be just who is reigning supreme. And in the U.S., it is a very white supreme um, institution. And it's been that way for a long time. And as we know, economically, there's a lot of ego that goes into keeping it the same.
1: And I can acknowledge Mm -hmm. in Australia, we have the same Mm -hmm. structure and I am, I'm enrolled in your course. And I think this is entirely relevant for us around the globe. You know, this is something that I think a lot of countries are grappling with and the recent events, you know, particularly the Black Lives Matter movement has really drawn it to focus where we really have to start looking at these structures. And as you said, this, this power imbalance.
0: Yes, exactly. And to speak to Um, other countries of what is similar? Do you have indigenous populations, which we're going to talk about that are ignored and have been stolen, land stolen, displaced. And what does that mean now? And how do we do some healing work for them? And that might start with just having a conversation, which we do to like bring it into people's consciousness of like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And then that leads to action.
1: So having the conversation is the first step to action and having it in our awareness. And you mentioned that this is lifelong work. So with regards to the power structures and, you know, this experience of racism, this isn't necessarily... I guess what a lot of us might originally without doing, you know, some conversation and reflection and work, we might assume racism is something like you described with white supremacy, pardon me, burning down sure. buildings or very direct assaults. That's not necessarily the everyday racism we're experiencing right now, is it?
0: Correct. And what we're doing in living in empathy is looking at those power structures of let's look at how, what history we've been taught. Mm-hmm. let 's look at who is at the top of these major corporations making billions let 's let 's be honest about our history and where uh, white supremacy is still raging today
1: so honest about our history and looking at who 's at the top so it kind of highlights that there 's this gross power imbalance in in policy, in the way that we're living every day. And that that's yeah. really what needs to shift. And I guess that's what we're moving towards in allyship is supporting that shift.
0: Yes. And I think it's white people just having the conversation about the truth and kind of, instead of being defensive or unable to hear it, getting to a point where we're having really honest, open, vulnerable conversations in living in empathy to say, you bring your defensiveness, bring your questions. That is how we work through it and get to action and get to that unfrozen thought out place where it's like, okay, I can hear, I can see clearly, and now I'm going to act. And people feel so good to be, feel empowered to make some change.
1: Yeah. So being able to work through those biases that, you know, living in, in the structure we are, we all carry and being able to move through that and see that and reflect on our own, you know, racism so that we can move to this place of, I guess a word I hear a lot is anti-racism. Would you mind sharing a bit about that word and, and what it means for you?
0: To be anti-racist, anti-racist is what it means to me is getting clear about the white supremacy that is controlling many countries throughout the world and the history that goes along with that. And then moving forward in a way that will dismantle some of those systems. And it's, you know, this is not a fast process. This is going to take years and strengthen numbers to dismantle some of these systems. And that is the commitment is to see clearly from huge macro levels and then self of how we live our truth and live in empathy to make um, all people be seen rather than a majority. Yeah, with the with the being seen,
1: would you mm. be able to talk a little bit to that? Because that I think would relate really closely with this concept of microaggressions and defining yes. this for the listeners.
0: So, what I love to give an, as an example of, like, a microaggression of like somebody um, making an assumption about a person based off the color of their skin or making a comment or um, we, all, we talk a lot about hair and the questions you ask that can be very off-putting and very isolating. Malintent, possibly not, but that does create a hostile environment for if there's one black person in the room um, and then these questions are getting thrown at that one person, like how is that making them feel welcome? Or feel seen, like it's not a person on display. It's a coworker, yeah. and making sure that we're um, seeing people fully, and not having a supremacist view when we're viewing other people that don't look like us.
1: Okay, so it's being really clear in how our words, how our behaviors communicate certain messages and the experience of that other person. You know, for instance, with the hair example, who might have that sense of being isolated and put on display. And essentially, in making that comment about hair, we're highlighting difference and difference
0: in a framework where the other person is
1: the other, so to speak.
0: Exactly. And when we're um, othering people, we have to think about how is that person feeling? And if you're, if you can think of a time when you are the other, what what was, what's whispering in your ear when you feel othered? Like I don't belong here, um, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not smart enough. And so then that creates serious trauma for people of color like you had talked about earlier. And then anxiety, depression, um, All these mental health and health issues start to arise um, because it is a daily struggle when you're in different environments where you're not feeling fully seen and heard.
1: And that ongoing trauma, really, that it's something that's lived day in, day out. I know you do do a lot of, you know, therapeutic work with with Black women, Black persons who have suffered this trauma. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit so that any Black listeners can go, oh, well, this is how I can take care of myself. Maybe I can reach out to Aaron, but just describe a little bit about how someone, what they might have experienced to kind of label it for them. And then we could look at some self-care if that's okay with you.
0: Oh, most definitely. I just want to give um, acknowledgement to being able to say these supremacist views were placed upon me and to not think it's my fault or it's me or I'm crazy or I'm being, I'm being too much. I'm being dramatic. No, this, this is a slow, many times it's a slow burn. You might've had some big racial incidents, or just small, like you said, the microaggressions that occur over and over and over. And then, um, to a point where self-care, I tell women, um, black women all the time, it's a full-time job. Besides the five other jobs you have to do as caretaker, full-time, you know, employed and mother and sister wife, um, to really think about how you're getting rest and how are you restoring. And I talked to many of my clients about being able to breathe. Many of us, either we breathe too fast or we hold our breath and what that does to our body. Also being able to talk it out with someone who you trust, which we know in the mental health field, um, we need way more black therapists to be able to do that to create a safe space. Um, Yeah.
1: I was just going to say also with that, with the disparity in the numbers of black therapists, I think that would, you know, reinforce or, you know, maybe highlight some of the white supremacy in the education system, the political structures. Exactly right. So that's something we probably as a whole need to be mindful of and seeing how we can take steps to support policy, you know, scholarships, whatever it may be to ensure that, you know, black persons do have access to a therapist who has that lived experience too.
0: Exactly. And that's why I've, I love doing the living and empathy work because it is allowing, um, white women are supporting me. I'm a black owned business and then it gives, and I've gotten, um, some really, um, generous donations. So then I can see black women for free who are underinsured or not insured at all. But still, like when you're out of a job, that's the time you really need mental health support. Um, So I'm able to do that now, which is so, uh, it's like my passion, I'm getting it on both ends. of like really helping um, white people who wanna do better and then helping my community heal.
1: That's incredible. And we'll put the links. I'll get them off of you so Thank we can put you. links in the show yes. notes too to be able to donate as yeah. well as obviously to the Living and Empathy group, which yes. we'll come back to. But yeah. in regards to self-care, so talking it
0: out and talking it out with someone who gets it. Mm, yes. And I and I have conversations with um future black clients when we're like, sure, let's do a 10 minute, 15 minute get to know you. And I've heard over and over, I don't want to have to explain. And yeah you shouldn't be paying me and to have to explain. Yeah. And I think that's something that we really need to bring to the, to the front of this conversation is that people need to be respected and seen Mm -hmm. for who they are.
1: Yeah, for sure. And so, not having to explain oneself. So if someone's working with someone who gets it, that obviously precludes Mm -hmm. them having to re-traumatize themselves in that explanation of their day-to-day experience, but also that it's all of our responsibility to the best of our ability, I think, to be trying to get it. We may never fully get it if we are white, but we need to do our part. Hey, is that? Yes.
0: And that's exactly what living in empathy is. It's like, The good hearted people who are like, you know what, I need to do better and I need to do more. And we're like, then start here. This is the perfect way to start your journey to being um, anti-racist and beyond that commitment, that lifelong commitment.
1: So with self care for a black woman as well, I imagine self care would also mean not necessarily engaging in these conversations around race or having to, you know, call out some of the abuse, which, you know, whatever language we use, abuse, microaggressions you experience day to day. So self care might also be kind of going, look, like you can get your own resources, education through a group, you know, go through um, living in empathy or, you know, that would that be sort of self care, these boundaries?
0: oh I'm and I want to bring up I'm so glad you brought that up is emotional labor that's the emotion and the energy that goes into educating white people about racism and when you're at work or you're at the store or you're at a party you should be allowed that is part of self-care like living living life and we as black people should not have to be stopping our lives to do that work and then it's bringing up stories for us that these aren't positive stories to educate about and around so yes so white people doing the work reading joining my group um watching a movie on netflix like start start with educating yourself yeah.
1: You have some, obviously we're going to be talking about the living in empathy group because this is so yeah. incredible. This is such a great yeah. resource because it's interactive. Are yes. there some other recommendations you have for people who are listening and, you know, perhaps right now feeling uncomfortable and almost moving into that freeze state, mm-hmm. we want to say yes. like, keep, keep going. So where could
0: you, where could you direct or right. other places people can start? Right. And I, I think reading
1: yeah. is a good, I mean, yeah. there's
0: so many articles, mm-hmm. um, Netflix now, when you turn it on, has the, um, all these movies highlighted, um, I think listening to podcasts (laughs) are a good one, um, buying, start by buying your children a book with black characters by a black author. Well, that's an
1: interesting point because you do have Instagram and I saw like, so definitely follow Erin on Instagram. Yeah, I post,
0: I post so many books because I want people to read. And I remember you posted a book where it was
1: a book about a um, a Black girl in the book, Mm -hmm. but was written by Mm -hmm. a white author. So this is an interesting Mm -hmm. distinction you've Mm -hmm. just made too, to support the Black authorship.
0: Yes, exactly. For sure. My favorite is called, um, sightseeing with Sandy. And it's so important that all children see a black child in the Bahamas on vacation, like all of us do just having a normal fun, soaking up the culture and normalizing, um, in that, that kind of defeat stereotypes Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: bias of like, No, black families just do exactly what we do. Like for a white parent could be saying that.
1: Yeah. And
0: then it starts it's starting at a younger age of not seeing these huge discrepancies or othering black people. Well, that's an interesting point about
1: starting, you know, an educational process early and not othering how, how do you have the conversation with children? I guess it's starting by having books around or toys around yes. and just making sure that, you know, we're, we're highlighting the diversity of a human experience, but also really normalizing, you know, yes. like you said, Bahamas on vacation.
0: Right, right. I think you're exactly right. It's just starting with, I th- always tell parents, if you don't start with yourself, then you can't have those conversations because if you're tiptoeing around race or around a discussion about um, George Floyd's assassination, yeah. then your children aren't learning. And as we know, they, they absorb everything at home yeah. and, if, and we can't put it on teachers because many teachers aren't equipped. So parents have to really start with themselves and that's where their learning can really get deep is in the home.
1: Yeah. So doing our own work to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. Would you actually talk us through white fragility? Because this is a barrier sure. to doing our work.
0: <laughs> sure. So if you could think of being fragile, many times um, it plays out in defensiveness of like, no, 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 I'm not like that. No, that's that's not true. Or I don't really like I've heard, um, when I've heard certain authors speak, I've heard people say, well, I didn't really like their tone or I don't like how they came across. And I was like, wow, you're not hearing the message because your defenses are up and your emotions are up. So it's getting people, that's why I love a small group model because I know for sure when people are allowed to feel, to say, you can bring your feelings, and it's okay, then we can get past the feelings into some rational thought. Yeah. So with, with right
1: fragility, it's that experience of, you know, our emotions coming up, feeling defensive and going,
0: oh, well, I'm not like that. I wouldn't do it. I'm, I'm different. Racist. Yeah.
1: Okay. Don't,
0: like, don't put that on me. Yeah. And not even getting to see like, oh no, there are systems. And, and I say to people, look, this is centuries of this history, don't, I mean, it's not so personal. It's just opening your eyes to the systematic racism that's come 400 years before you.
1: Yeah, and the the privilege that's
0: inherent in that? Correct, and then how to see clearly and then do better for your children and do better for Black people and Latinx people and indigenous people.
1: Okay, oh, that's like a really, I think really reflective opportunity for us, you know, that we might notice emotions, strong emotions coming up and learning the skills to be able to step back from that experience and examine where that's coming from, put it in the context Mm -hmm. of the centuries Mm -hmm. old, you know, power structures we're living within and then figure out a way to do our work so we do do better for our children and do do better for the, you know, Black community, Latinx, Indigenous communities. So with with that, you... um, describe tone and I've heard, you know, mm-hmm. tone policing. Would you define that for us? Because this not hearing the message because we're focused on tone, I think is really important.
0: Right, And I can, I can say it's, it goes to the white fragility piece. Like you just brought up, we are deflecting from the message. Cause I don't, I'm finding something wrong with the way you're delivering. So I'm not hearing. And that okay. and that's the defensiveness of you're you're not coming across to me how I want. It's a lot of I instead of this isn't about me. This is about the message, not the way in which it's being delivered to me.
1: Okay. So if someone says something fairly direct or blunt, which makes sense in the context of the centuries old abuse people have experienced, we might, you know, like as a white person go, oh, that was really abrasive or that was really loud or angry. And I didn't like that. So I, you know, I'm going to focus on that delivery rather than going, oh, like, like this is something that I need to look at and I need to hold. We're focusing on the delivery as a way of protecting us in quotation marks, nice. protecting ourselves from the discomfort of the message. Exactly. Am I getting that? So,
0: yeah, I can give you an example too yeah. of policing. So I wrote a letter, an open letter to my graduate school social work um, about racial issues. And I was very direct and deliberate. And I got one woman posted like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm seeing some typos and some incorrect grammar and that like, good God. And I had three professors look it over before I posted and sent it out. And I was like, again, you're not hearing or seeing me or seeing this issue because it's about you and you are great knowledge of the English language. And so that is a specific example of finding fault and how painful well and then for me man wow like that's what you saw you're you're trying to find typos and call me out for something that is completely ridiculous
1: Yeah. And I think, so she focused on, you know, for her comfort or whatever, her great knowledge and makes herself feel better uh by positioning herself Mm -hmm. as, you know, the all knowing. So there's a positioning and then, you know, not, as you said, hearing your message, but I guess, I don't know if you're willing to share a little bit because I imagine I I, I would have taken a lot of courage to write that letter. I don't imagine that's easy in the context of the power structures.
0: I mean, I'm writing this to the president of the college and the dean. Yes. In an open format where I don't know how many people are going to see this, but I don't have a choice to stay silent because you can't be an anti-racist college when you don't have any black faculty that just doesn't make sense and it fell on deaf ears so I had no choice I had to write an open letter
1: wow that's a really interesting reflection as well Mm -hmm. an anti-racist college that didn't have black faculty and you know we just talked about how there is a lack of therapists who are black right So there's something going on here, which highlights the disparity in the educational system.
0: Agreed. And when there is a conversation, then gaslighting to be like, oh, well, we just can't find anyone. Mm. So there, that goes back to the defensiveness.
1: And with that, you know, I guess someone, I'm speaking as the position of a white person here, Sure. When there is affirmative action, so for instance, looking at the staffing in a college and going, "Well, this is not reflective. This is not the stance we want to be," I have heard white people say, "Well, that's not fair." Again, I say it in quotation marks because I deserve that position, or you know, why are um, why is that person getting special treatment? Would that be an example of supremacy, fragility, both? Oh, like, you how got does? it. Yeah.
0: You got it. Because. It's ingrained when we live in a white supremacist society that white rules. And when I'm not ruling, oh no, I'm gonna create some problems because this isn't fair because we haven't taken everything over. Yeah And that when that becomes the norm, then that sets, the, as you know, sets up for systematic um, racism, All different levels and forms of racism come out of that type of thinking. From our housing, to our education, um, to to who has access, um, to certain jobs.
1: Yeah, so we need need to be mindful when we feel that discomfort about something not being fair. If we're in a position of privilege and power, we need to be mindful when we feel that discomfort to reflect because... I guess I've heard the the conceptualization that racism is like, it's an act. It's not like a discrete identity. It's these acts. So we, while we might not again, and I say, I'm doing lots of air quotes, but we might not agree with racism, but we might be acting in a way that is racist in a moment. And we need to notice that and call ourselves out because that is the work of anti-racism to catch ourselves, I
0: suppose. Right. But if you don't, have the space to practice and talk through um, racism. And that's, that's my whole life's mission is to yeah. help people process. That's what I do. Um, so that's why living in empathy gives that space. Cause I know if we just read a book, but we don't have anyone to process, that's why people love book clubs because you get to talk. <laughs> I love book clubs. Yes. <laughs> totally. yes, And it's like, we need to have a space to talk and yeah. say like, I don't understand that part. Did you get it? Or I don't like that character. And like, well, why don't you like the character? Um, mm-hmm. yeah. To examine, that, to examine huge
1: Yeah. So that's, I guess, highlighting that listeners, like this is important is to, you know, connect in with group to connect in with conversation, because while we can be doing the reading, it's not necessarily the same as dialoguing. And, you know, like we have in therapy, you know, someone shines a light up for us, don't they? Like it's Mm -hmm. a similar process where we don't see
0: our blind spots. Right. And the blind spots are huge. Yeah. Um, just going over ways in which white privilege seep into real life every single day. And that little, that tension where people are like, this feels icky to me and I got to do something about it. And getting to that point, I mean, it, it takes time and work and showing up to a group. If, you know, that's what it takes. Yeah. And I, I,
1: I guess to, to lens it as well, you know, like you probably see this in the therapy room as well. Like when something is uncomfortable, we tend to avoid it or deny it, Mm -hmm. which might be this tendency that comes up when we notice, you know, racism or like the, increasing conversation around racism, given the Black Lives movement matter. And as you highlighted earlier, you know, the recent death of George Floyd and countless others, we yes. might feel, ooh, that's uncomfortable, that's a key. Maybe we feel frozen and then we avoid or deny to feel more comfortable and we need mirror, like opportunity to reflect, to look at our own biases. And as you said, like a
0: supportive environment. Right, and how good does it feel? to talk through that discomfort and then get to a place of feeling more empowered to speak. Mm-hmm. I, as you know, in many therapeutics, when you have that anxiety or you're stuck in this depressed state, I mean, it feels awful. And yeah. to process some of that to get to a better place is the goal. To interrupt when you, it's like it's on the tip of your tongue, but you're like, I just, I do. It's like, nope, you're gonna come out of this group being like, no, I'm ready.
1: I'm ready to intervene. Actually, incredible because this is something that, you know, I am probably many other people struggle with is those moments where you say something like that feeling of discomfort. But as you said, it's an ickiness, having that sense of like groundedness and clarity to use our voices, because particularly when we are in this position of privilege, our voice is inherent in changing the structures, isn't it? It's so, so important. And we need to know
0: how to support. Exactly. And the strength in voices saying, we're not we're not blind to this anymore and we've got we have an ethical obligation as humans just to be like I'm not I'm not okay seeing another black mother in the street or at a funeral crying over a senseless murder I just we can't sit around and watch this anymore
1: yeah that's it's a really important point, isn't it, that it's an ethical obligation to action to movement, and that it it starts with us, but it sounds you know we have to be political, really, if we're going to yes. change these structures. and yes. that's that's something we do need, I guess, the support to know how to move forward in because that does demand energy, necessarily. yes, yes. You're so right. Erin, so joining the Living in Empathy group, you have two mm-hmm. different groups. You have groups for, you know, anyone, anybody, no
0: anyone come join. Yes. Um, come on, man. We need a man. I've had all oh, is women it for men
1: as well. Sorry. And yes. I was
0: probably yes. pushing the stereotype so it can be anyone brilliant. It can. No, we are like, come on people. Anyone who wants the support in a community and have real conversations Um, And I do, like you said, I have a group for therapists because I'm in the field and I know that it's a major issue now with the lack of black therapists and how to be more um, anti-racist in the therapy room. But most of the groups are for anyone. We have from women who are in high finance type of very corporate jobs to um, nurses to therapists, to teachers, all over the US too. And now you're adding. Now we can go international. (laughs) Worldwide. It's so cool. It's just, and it's, yeah, it's making, it's for people who really are just like, I can't sit here anymore. I gotta add.
1: And that's really cool because I see, you know, like we connected through Instagram and I see all these posts on, How to be an ally. But you know, scrolling through five posts on how to be an ally, you know, for me, like it's useful, it's really useful information. But I think that applied knowledge, that practice and being a big believer in therapy and coaching, you know, myself, this makes sense to me, that it's interaction, that there's that opportunity for real reflection and someone to hold the mirror.
0: Right. It's like we can talk all we want, but let's be about it. Yeah. Let's not just sit around and talk about let's be about it. And I can tell you every week you will walk away, which you will see when you start in July, our July groups are open. Um, You will walk away with a micro and a macro action for the week. So you will feel like you're doing the work.
1: Could you just define micro and macro actions for us? Yes, Yes.
0: so I want you to think micro self is what am I doing every week to further the cause of myself being anti-racist And on a bigger scale, how am I furthering society or my community or my child's school or where my money goes um, to be making a difference? So if you're donating to a Black-owned business or you're buying, like myself, I buy my coffee from a Black-owned young man who's making a great name for himself with Ethiopian, like amazing coffee. And so I'm not giving my money to starbucks which is a big macro company and i'm giving it to his small business that is booming now so it's really just like where where's your heart lie where are some of your your causes and like you said the political front's a huge macro issue like voting and laws that are being made or taken off the books yeah I
1: I think that's a really interesting point too. And it's, I think, empowering, as you said, to have a micro and a macro because starting yes. doing something that's micro leads us to like start our action and see that actually these things change the bigger picture. And you're essentially like buying your coffee, you're voting with your dollars. Like that is, you got it. That is an incredible leverage that we have where we spend our money, where we donate our money, where we
0: invest our time. Yes. And even thinking of like indigenous communities, are we buying straight from them because we don't need to buy knockoffs at anthropology or target I mean I'm speaking of US stores. Well we have let's Target go, here so that's good. <laughs> see? It's yeah. like why do we need to be buying an indigenous item at Target? You yeah. need to go to the the source. And what and then I was joking tonight in one of the groups I said, "Oh, your family then you can have a competition like who gives the coolest gifts because they're coming from real people and they're authentic.
1: And that's a beautiful energy. And I I guess like maybe just quickly before we wrap things up, because I am involved in the yoga community as well. And Mm. cultural appropriation is one thing that I'm, mindful of their and spiritual bypassing being the other where you know we might do the I say in air quotes once more you know good vibes only that actually as part of various communities um, we actually all probably need to look at the structures within our own communities and you mentioning for instance supporting indigenous artists and tribes and going and making sure our money is going direct to the source, I guess, being mindful too around items that we might wear or purchase that may not necessarily be appropriate in our cultural context.
0: Correct. And when you think about, are we honoring culture or did we steal it and capitalize and sitting with that? Like, do I, am I really looking at the yoga community as I'm learning from them are we taking it and making it our own? Yeah. And I think that's where the indigenous and the yoga community has been really exploited that mm. no, it's not about a hundred dollar pants with the $80 shirt to match. That is so far from the origin and how we're not valuing um, all these amazing lessons and teachings yeah. that are so old and so valued, but we're then taking it and making them cheap. Yeah. Totally. And I guess with that, reflecting
1: on it, holding space for that and probably having those conversations, you know, in whatever communities we're in. And this is one that I can obviously give example of, like making sure we are honoring that our communities are political. We don't get to be apolitical and we don't get to just yes. not talk about things that even if it's uncomfortable we need to be holding space for these conversations. You know, for talking in yoga terms, you know, there's a lot of talk around Ahimsa, which means non-harm. Mm-hmm. And non-harm mm-hmm. means doing this work. So I think it's important yes. for all of us to be yes. figuring out what it means to do non-harm, which means to learn how to be an anti-racist, learning how to be
0: an ally and moving yes. into connections. Yes. And as we know, living in white supremacist societies, you don't know you're doing harm because it's ingrained in the society. So coming to a space like living in empathy and learning, like, oh my gosh, I had no idea I was harming this community. And then um, making sure that you feel like your heart, many people's, their heart is in the right place. It's just lack of knowledge and making sure we're talking through that. Yeah, great, great example.
1: And I have so much to learn on that. And I cannot wait for the group
0: to start.
1: Where where can listeners find you, connect with you? You know, both people who might be interested in the group and, you know, black individuals who are like, you know, I need support. I need someone who gets it. So where can we all reach out to you? You
0: can find me. um, My website is com, And also my... um, LivingandEmpathy.com. Well, you can find me there too. It'll take you to my website and at um, on IG at Aaron Matthews LCSW, and also my partner who's Indigenous um, at Nima N I M A. Novak N O V A K, and we post a lot and at Living and Empathy on Instagram. We're trying to be really mindful of posting real information for people who are ready and willing to do this work. You can find my groups. You can, and I know, Caitlin, you are going to be with us and it works out for Australian time. It
1: does, and maybe I'll just give a tip for Australian listeners because I think a lot of companies, corporations right now are very supportive of movements towards cultivating empathy within ourselves and you know doing the work around how we all become anti-racist so it is during working hours the group translates in the morning in Australia so I think even if you're like oh like that's during my working hours talk to your managers talk to your employers because I have no doubt that they would love your continuing professional development to be ensuring that you are showing up in a way that is as as aware as grounded and as informed to making sure that we are yeah. Effective allies.
0: Right. And I've told people who, um, if they can't afford it at this time, I said, we know we've had people who their loved ones or friends or family have helped them because I'm a black owned business. You're supporting me and easy to make a donation and then support, um, someone being in the group. And I also, if someone would like to support, um, a Black person getting free mental Therapy. health, please DM me um, on Instagram. I have a way um, if you'd like to do that type of support. I posted um, a free self-care workshop last Friday for anyone. So I just said, if any white person watches and you want to make a donation, um, it's up on my Instagram too. So feel free. It's an hour of self-care strategies that's great. And maybe we yes. could also put the
1: link to make the donation, yeah. um, in Perfect. the show notes as well. So if people, if you didn't catch any of the information or, yes. you know, your mind is, um, as dyslexic as mine, there'll be links there to click through and make sure yes. that you connect with Aaron and Nima and the living in empathy group. And yeah, yeah, take the time to watch the self-care video, because this is something we all need. You know, this is, this is a great opportunity, a great resource. So please, connect in, learn more. And yeah, I guess move forward in in all of our quest or ongoing quest to live more effectively
0: in empathy. That's right. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you to your audience. Thank you for having this conversation. We call them courageous conversations to just be honest and just be two people talking about race. It's possible. And
1: thank you, Erin, for showing up so fully and for taking this time and space, because I know it is the emotional labor that you have provided us here today, sharing about your experiences and sharing about your wisdom. And yeah, I am looking so forward to sitting with you, you know, in a virtual circle and connecting with yourself, Nima and the other women who are stepping up to the table to live in empathy.
0: Let's make this a worldwide movement. I love it. We can do it. We can can do it. We can
1: change this world, as you said, Mm -hmm. micro and macro actions day to day. I hope that you found this interview with Erin as powerful, as educational, and also as motivating towards action as I did. You can, of course, connect with Erin, Erin Matthews, lcsw.com she's under the same name on instagram or you can also connect with at living in empathy on instagram and at nima.novak on instagram Erin's co-facilitator of the living in empathy group of course all of this will be on the show notes so head on over to drcaitlin.com to get connected And also please come and join us on social media on Instagram at Dr. Caitlin on Facebook at wisdom for wellbeing pod. And there you can participate in our season two giveaway. There is nothing like a launch party to bring this community together. And what a fantastic opportunity to be able to support local indigenous artists and our own education. I'm looking forward to connecting with you next week and I'm wishing you and yours well. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for well being is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.